0: I was reading through 1 Peter this uh, New Testament document written by this disciple of Jesus and I came across these words he said in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have here the apostle Peter is writing to Christians who've been scattered because of persecution and they are, are living in trying to make the best they can of their life, having been um, ejected from Jerusalem because of intense persecution, starting lives over everywhere. And here, one of the things he encourages them to do is to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who might ask you, why are you a Christian? I was thinking of different ways that this might come across. It might come from our children or, or grandchildren asking the question to you, how come we're Christians? Why do we believe what we do? Maybe you're asking the question yourself. Uh, This last year, in some ways, has been just one shock after another as we've been kind of jolted by news of Christians in leadership positions failing and failing miserably. And some of us are asking questions about our faith. What what is it that I believe? What's essential? Do Do I embrace this teaching that obviously so many people have a hard time living up to? So maybe you're questioning yourself. Why am I a Christian? What do I believe? maybe it just comes from the snarky coworker or neighbor that says, so why are you a Christian? As if that's the most crazy thing in the world to be. <laughs> How would you answer that question? What would you say? What would you say to yourself or to your, your family members or to that cynical coworker who can't believe that you would follow a man who lived 2,000 years ago? After all, we're just modern people now. Now let's take it one step further. Let's suppose, and I was going this way in my mind as I was reading First Peter about different scenarios I could be in, which I asked this question, which I was asked this question, and so let's just say that you're on national TV. <laughs> and it surfaces that you are a Christian. And so the question comes to you by the host with the lights glaring: why are you a Christian? A question like this was asked of Bono, who was the lead singer of the rock group. You too on an Irish television show called The Meaning of Life. And so, this was the question he was asked Who or what was Jesus as far as you're concerned? And he answered this way I think it's a defining question for a Christian. And I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a philosopher, because actually, he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So he either, in my view, was the son of God, or he was (laughs) nuts. Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. I mean Charlie Manson-type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that whole millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for 2,000 years, have been touched. felt for lives touched and inspired by some nutter. (laughs) I just don't believe it. I don't know about you, but I think that that's a pretty good answer, considering the pressure's on and millions of people are going to hear your answer. And I think it's a good response. You know, for a lead singer of a rock group, not too bad. But I think this response was good as far as it goes. It's not simply enough for us to say our lives have been touched by Jesus or inspired by Jesus. Although that's a good thing to say, there's something much more foundational that any inspiration is built off of. In fact, there's this one thing that happened. Let me ask it this way. What is the one thing that if you took away, there would be no Christianity? In fact, this one thing, if it did not happen, would mean we would never have heard of Jesus Christ, no matter how inspirational or touching his teachings might be. Before the early Christians had a copy of the Bible, they had something else that they banked their lives on. What was that? Speaking, of course, of an empty tomb, which signaled the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So we're going to call our study today of First Importance. This is the the bedrock, bottom line, foundational truth that we ought to build our lives upon. And if you're considering what it means to follow Jesus, this is actually one of the best passages of scripture to, to study in understanding the core event that triggered the launch of this movement of Jesus. And so as we go through this passage today, I want to give you three words that begin with the letter E. To remember what is foundational to our faith. And so I know we're in a college town, oftentimes students will ask professors, is there going to be a test? Do I have to know this for the test? And let me just say, yes, there will be a test, and you have to know this. (laughs) And so let me pause and just pray and ask the Lord to open these scriptures for us. No doubt some of us have read these words before, and uh, maybe for some of us these words are are unfamiliar. Let's just lean into the Lord and ask him to, to teach us this day. Lord, as we get ready to open these scriptures and and hear what you have to say through the Apostle Paul, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive these things, that you would unstop our ears to hear the good news of Jesus, that you would give us uh, eyes to see, eyes wide open, to see what we're building our lives upon, what the invitation is to build our lives upon, and help us, Lord. Some of us have... Have been really questioning what it is that we believe because we've been rocked by the scandals that have been that have come to light, prominent Christians, and we've seen abuse in other situations, and it just makes us shake our head and it hurts our hearts, and and we're a little bit rocked. Replant us upon the rock of the gospel of Jesus, and so meet us this day and encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So, as I mentioned in the prayer, we're going to be looking at words from the Apostle Paul. Just remember, by way of review, who Paul was. He was an adversary of Jesus and his movement. He was a member of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who conspired to put Jesus to death. And he persecuted the church. When these Christians started going around saying, we've seen Jesus come back from the dead, it just lit him up. And he went around arresting Christians and even uh, was supervising the first martyrdom, Stephen, who was stoned to death. But Paul... (laughs) by an act of amazing grace, was met by the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And not only did he forgive Paul of his sin, but he commissioned him to become part of his movement. And he became one of the prime ambassadors of Jesus to the Roman Empire. In fact, Paul wrote half the New Testament that we have in our Bibles. And so this is who we're going to be listening to today. And so he's writing to these group of Christians living in this ancient city of Corinth. And he says to them these words, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So they know the gospel, but Paul is going to remind them of the gospel. And for those of you who have been a part of Mercy Hill Church, you know what the gospel is. Let's define it negatively, what it's not, to begin with. The gospel is not some advice or suggestion It's not tips for successful living. It's not about self-improvement. It's not any of those things. And many of us tend to approach the the scriptures in this way. How can I find a little nugget of truth to make my life better? And and there's certainly many nuggets of truth that if we embrace, make our lives better. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is simply the good news. And if you're on that national television show and they ask you, What is the gospel? One of the first things you should say is the gospel is good news. That's what the word means. In fact, we might use it in terms of breaking news. Like we hear on the evening news, it's breaking news. It was a common word in the Roman Empire. In fact, for example, if there was a new king who ascended in an area of the province of of the Roman Empire or even a new emperor, apostles or messengers would be sent out With the announcement, the breaking news, the good news that there's a new king or a new emperor on the throne. And so this is what the early Christians went around saying. They weren't talking about a new emperor on the throne of Rome. They're talking about something much more important than that. The gospel really is good news about what God has done in Christ for the salvation of the world. God intends to redeem this fallen and broken world. And at the very heart of that is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what God has done in and through Jesus to bring about salvation. So Paul says to them, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. So Paul tells them, look, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to remind you of the good news that I've preached to you. And this is what saves you. This is what you embrace. This is what you cling to for life. And then he has this little almost kind of throwaway sentence, unless you've believed in vain. What does that mean? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. He says in verse 3, For I declare to you as of first importance what I also received. And he's saying, look, this is the most important thing. And you can rank things in order of importance. And Paul is saying this is of first importance. If you get nothing else about the Christian faith, get this. This is is foundational. This is of first importance. What is it? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried. So I mentioned we're going to have three E words, right? Here's the first one. There was an execution. Paul says Christ was crucified and he was buried. Uh, this is foundational, and, and it's almost so commonplace that we, we should hardly even emphasize it, but I'm going to emphasize it anyway. One man by the name of John Dominic Crossan, who's, he would describe himself as a liberal New Testament professor. He's done a lot of study of the historical Jesus, and he's written books about Jesus, and he said this, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. For if no follower of Jesus had written anything for 100 years after his crucifixion, we would still know about him from two authors that are not among his supporters. Their names are Flavius Josephus and Cornelius Tacitus. He says, look, even if you didn't have any historical documents from Christians about Jesus in the first century, we would still know about the death of Jesus through two Roman historians, Josephus and Tacitus. Let's look at them in order. Josephus was a Jewish man who worked for the Roman Empire, writing history for them. And so you better bet that he had to get things right. You don't mess up in recording history for Rome. And this is what he says in his book, Antiquities. He said, At this time, speaking of the time of Jesus, there was a man, a wise man called Jesus, and Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. This is in the official records of the Roman Empire. Cornelius Tacitus, who lived just a little bit later than him, wrote towards the end of the first century, Christus, which is a Latinized spelling of the name of Jesus, Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. So here's Josephus, and here's Tacitus, both historians working for the Roman Empire who recorded that Jesus was indeed executed at the hands of Pontius Pilate. There's a modern-day historian by the name of Bart Ehrman. He's a distinguished professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he's no friend of Christianity. He, he, he has this interesting place where he teaches about Christianity, but he does not like it. He's a, he describes himself as a former Christian, actually. But he said, one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. So modern day historians as well as ancient historians say this is a no-brainer. This actually happened and so much so is this the case that if anyone were to doubt it we would have to seriously question their understanding of history, their rationality. I mean anyone who studies history and knows how history is done will tell you that Jesus was ordered to be crucified on orders of Pontius Pilate. And so there was a crucifixion. But what does it mean? On one level, you had the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders, who despised Jesus and believed that he was blaspheming. They believed that he was lying, that he was a danger to their way of life and their faith. And so they wanted him killed. They could have stoned him themselves. Rome discouraged them taking things and matters into their own hands, but they could have done that. But they wanted Jesus humiliated. And so they conspired with the Roman leaders, namely Pontius Pilate and another man, another Herod, who was a leader of of the Roman Empire, his area of Rome, and they they conspired with them to put Jesus to death by crucifixion. And so on a very just kind of historical level, what happened is you had these different parties who got together and sought in their best interest to put Jesus to death. That's what we would have seen if we lived there. But what does it mean? God the Father, in agreement with God the Son before eternity, or in eternity past, before time ever began, agreed together that Jesus would come and he would incarnate himself, that is, he would become human and he would live the kind of life that we were meant to live. He would teach us about God and he would die the death that our sins deserve. And so when these authorities got together and conspired to crucify Jesus, God was in the background doing something else. The Bible tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. When Jesus hung upon that cross, despised, shamed by people, God was at work making Jesus the sacrifice of atonement. In fact, it says in the book of Romans, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh What that means for you and me is that when we believe in Jesus, we understand that what God has done is he's taken all the bad that we've done, all the selfishness and selfish acts and thoughts that we've had, past, present, and future, and laid them on the broad shoulders of Jesus. And there they were condemned. That's why we can say the words that we said a while ago in our service. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there was an execution, And let me just say most Christians get an A plus on this. And talking about the gospel, most Christians right there saying Jesus died for our sins. There was an execution. Paul goes on and he's talking about this issue of first importance. Not only did Christ die for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, not only was he buried, but he tells us that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So here's the second E. There's an empty tomb. There's an execution, and there's an empty tomb. And what's interesting is that all full four Gospels, these historical biographies of Jesus, tell us that Jesus was buried in the tomb of a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, why would they include that detail for us? Well, because people living at that time could go to Joseph of Arimathea and verify it. But it's even better than that. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. What is that? That was the Supreme Court of Israel. That would be like saying, he's buried in the tomb of the Supreme Court member of the United States. Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Clarence Thomas, this big name, (laughs) buried Jesus in his own tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was not with the other religious leaders when they condemned Jesus to be crucified. And when he was crucified, he requested the body of Jesus and had him buried in his own tomb. So, there is an empty tomb. You could go ask Joseph of Arimathea about it. But here's another interesting point. If Jesus' body was still in the tomb, then it would have been easy for the Roman authorities to produce it. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, there are some religious leaders who went and asked Pontius Pilate to have a Roman guard placed outside the tomb of Jesus because there is this scuttlebutt, scuttlebutt around how Jesus would sometimes talk about coming back from the dead. And they didn't want that to happen. They didn't want people to steal his body, so they placed this Roman guard in, in front of the tomb. And that guard failed in guarding it because there was an empty tomb. But what happened was the, the chief priests, the, the leader's, of the religious organization in Israel, gave money, a sufficient sum of money, to these soldiers and said, tell people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. They gave him a bunch of money to say this, but we know from Roman historical records that if Roman guards fell asleep while on duty, they could be put to death themselves. But what other card did they have to play? Because the body they were supposed to be guarding is no longer there. But something else is really interesting about the Gospel accounts. All four Gospels record that the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb were women. Now, you and I think nothing about that. And you know, if Leslie walks in the room and says, Hey, John, i got something unbelievable to tell you. I'd be like, what is it? And I would believe it because she tells me. I trust Leslie. But back in the first century culture, women's testimony was not considered valid in court of law. The noble people were the men. They're the ones who told the truth, which if you can believe, of course men would say something like that, right? But women's words were not taken seriously. In fact, when the first women who saw the empty tomb went back and told the disciples, they couldn't believe it. (laughs) N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, said this. I think it's very insightful. If they could have invented stories of fine, upstanding, reliable male witnesses being the first to the tomb, they would have done it. That they did not tells us that everyone in the early church knew that the women, led by Mary Magdalene, were in fact the first on the scene. And see, right here says, look, if you're going to to make up a story you want to be really good, you don't put women out front as your chief witnesses. You put men. But they couldn't do that. For the simple reason that everyone knew it was the women who went to the tomb that Sunday morning, that first Easter and became the first proclaimers, the first preachers, if you will, of the resurrection of Jesus. So the first E was what? There was an execution. The second E is that there was an empty tomb. The third E is that there were eyewitnesses. Paul goes on and says in verse 5, Then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, And then to to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Let's just take a couple of these and just remind ourselves of why this is so significant. Now, the first name that he brings up is Cephas, or Peter. And we know that Peter was the one who denied Jesus when they came to arrest him. And then Jesus was on trial, and Peter snuck up to the courtyard to see if he could find any information about what was going on and they identified him as a follower of Jesus, he denied it. He didn't want to end up crucified like Jesus was going to end up crucified. But then he met the resurrected Jesus. And he would stand up in Acts chapter 2 and preach the very first sermon about Jesus to a general audience. There were pilgrims all over the place in Jerusalem at this time. And he gets up and he tells them that God, this Jesus, God raised up. And we are all witnesses they didn't say first of all you know let's just because Jesus has touched our lives let's just you know honor him they didn't say Jesus taught some really good things like love one another so let's just all be loving from one another that wasn't their message their message was we saw Jesus crucified and then we met him after he was dead he's come back from the dead he would later write to some Christians these words for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. He knew there were certain things called myths going around, but he said, look, we are eyewitnesses of these things. Well, another witness that Paul pours forward is the fact that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. And this is significant, because if he just appeared to an individual, you could write it off, Right? But he says he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, and he says most of them are still alive. He's writing in the, in the 60s, in the first century, about 30 years after Jesus walked the earth. And he says, look, there are a bunch of people that Jesus appeared to at one time, and you can actually talk to most of them. Now, you don't play that card if there's no one who saw Jesus. <laughs> you know, that doesn't help your, your case, People go around, who are these people who saw Jesus? I don't, no one saw Jesus. What are you talking about? <laughs> he says, look, this happened. And then he also mentions James. What's the significance of James? James was the brother of Jesus who thought Jesus was a little bit crazy. When Jesus was ministering, he and his other siblings thought Jesus was off his rocker. But then. Jesus appeared to his brother after he was crucified, after he came back from the dead. And James, who didn't believe in Jesus, became a devoted follower and proclaimer of Jesus in Jerusalem, the hot spot where they crucified Jesus. And he suffered persecution. He became the leader of of probably the most intensely persecuted church of the first century. Why would he do that if Jesus was not alive? And then Paul says this, last of all, as the one untimely born, he also appeared to me for i am the least of all the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god whenever i read these words i wonder if paul's breath would escape me just for a moment or you know a tear coming to his eye jesus had mercy on me he appeared to me me of all people i was killing christians I was hell-bent on arresting them and throwing them in prison and squashing the Jesus movement. But then he appeared to me, and he made me a proclaimer of his gospel. He entrusted me with his mission to preach before kings and paupers. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that Paul was actually at one point arrested, put in prison, and then brought to trial before King Agrippa. And in his defense, he says to Agrippa these words, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This shouldn't be incredible. I mean, if God spoke this world into existence and he created you and me, the walking miracles, then why should it be odd to think that God could bring someone back from the dead? And then he goes on later in his speech to him and says, The king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Here's the Apostle Paul, not speaking to poor, uneducated peasant farmers in some obscure backwoods corner of the Roman Empire. Here he's speaking truth to kings who had power to put him to death. And he says, look, I know this hasn't escaped your attention. This hasn't been done in some corner of the empire. Everyone knows about this. And in fact, the scriptures tell us, the book of Acts, that with great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon him. This is significant. There's a professor by the name of Gerd Ludemann, uh, yes, who teaches professor. He's a, he's a teaching professor of history and early Christian literature at a major university in Germany. And he said these words. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. friends, the reason why this is significant and the reason why this is of first importance is because this is what we build everything upon. Listen to what Tim Keller said in his book, The Reason for God. He says, in the Christian view, the ultimate evidence for the existence of God is Jesus Christ. If there is a God, we characters in this play have to hope that he puts some information about himself in the play. But Christians believe he did more than give us information. He wrote himself into the play as the main character in history when Jesus was born in a manger and rose from the dead. So you could be on national TV and someone could say, well, why do you believe in God? There's a number of things that you could say. We could use uh, arguments to say that um, everything that began to exist had a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. There's a place for arguing that. We could go into the fine tuning of the universe and talk about how this universe is, is set on this very precise dial with gravity and everything else that makes it just perfect for life to be here. And if there's life, or if those dials were off just a little bit, there wouldn't be life. We could talk about that. But really, at the end of the day, why Christians believe in God is because of Jesus. We believe that God became human in the person of Jesus and that he lived he died, and he rose again. So, your three E's for the test. There was an execution, there was an empty tomb, and there were eyewitnesses. This is of first importance. When someone asks you, why are you a Christian? Recall these three E's to help you remember something really good to say, to give a reason for the hope that you have. Remember I said earlier there's that little throwaway phrase that Paul used, unless you believed in vain. What did he mean by that? Well, he would go on in chapter 15 to say this. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he was He raised Christ from the dead. He says here that like, if Christ has not been raised from the dead... Our preaching is foolish. Your faith is wasted. There's there's nothing here. He goes on to say, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, Look, it's a fact that Jesus came back from the dead. That's why I'm preaching. That's why I'm risking my life. That's why, Corinthians, I'm reminding you what's of first importance. And so, my friends, you owe it to yourself to come to terms with the execution, the empty tomb, and the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you're wondering about what you should build your life upon, this is the foundational stone. If you're hearing the sound of my voice through this audio stream or maybe in a recording later on, and you're just trying to figure out Christianity, know that this is the bedrock. You have to come to grips with the significance of the execution, the empty tomb, and the eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection, who went around telling everyone this happened, and most of them paid for it with their life. I shared this quote with you before on Easter. Easter is past. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not, nothing else matters. Yaroslav Pelikan, professor at Yale University, understood the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. This is of first importance. This is the most important thing. But if he's not, nothing else matters. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. There's actually one more E I want to highlight. There's the empty tomb. I'm sorry, the execution, the empty tomb, and eyewitnesses. But there's one more E that we should remember. And this good news is for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're old or young, It doesn't matter if you're born in a Christian home or a Muslim home or a Hindu home, a Buddhist home, an atheist, agnostic home. It doesn't matter. This news is given to you to believe in. It summons a response, an invitation. An invitation is simply that we embrace it, that we embrace Jesus as the risen Lord. There's a fellow named Justin Briarly. He has this podcast called Unbelievable, and he brings together Christians and non-Christians to talk about the things that matter the most. and He wrote this book with the title of his podcast called Unbelievable, and the subtitle is Why After Ten Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian. It's a good book. You You should read it. But he said this of himself. He said, as a Christian, my reality is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. It all begins and ends with him. His death is the defining act of love by a God who came in person to rescue and redeem his broken yet loved creation. And his resurrection is the breaking in of a new world where death, pain, and despair will one day be swallowed up in a glorious new creation. We can put it like this. Not only is the good news about Jesus the greatest news that has been heard, but is the best possible news that could ever be heard and believed. There's nothing that tops it. So remember our friend Bono. I don't know, he's not really our friend. Our guy we were talking about earlier. (laughs) On that show, there's some follow-up questions to what he said. And the, the interviewer asked, So therefore, it follows that you believe he was divine? Yes, was the answer. And therefore, it follows that you believe he physically rose from the dead? Yes. I have no problem believing in miracles. I'm surrounded by them. I am one. And when you pray, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. So my friends, as a community of Jesus followers, let us commit ourselves and recommit ourselves to this good news of Jesus. This is priority number one. This is of first importance.